It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, the return of Snooker Player Bingo. If you haven't heard this before, it's very simple. We write out a list of snooker players. We give them all a number, and I invite my guests to pick a number and then talk about that player. It's just me and Phil Yates uh, this week, but uh, Phil, as you will know if you've listened before, is a mine of stories. So let's uh, get into Snooker Player Bingo. Okay, Phil, pick a number between one and ten. Okay, I'll go for number seven. Number seven is uh, very much uh, one of the best players, I guess, of the last 15 years, Matthew Stevens. Well, Matthew Stevens won one world ranking title, the UK Championship. He won the Masters, of course, very famously. Um, a class act, a very good player, great all round game, known for getting so close to winning the World Championship without doing so. I think the big thing you have to say about him, and this is not any criticism of Matthew whatsoever, I think it's a compliment, even though he won the UK and the Masters, you have to say an underachiever, because for him to win only one world ranking title, definitely short of what it should have been. Yeah, I think he'd agree with that. I mean, he came through the second wave after the, Sullivan, Higgins, Williams, it was him, it was Paul Hunter, like a grand dot, and a few others as well. And clearly, from a young age, very talented. He'd grown up in Wales, a very strong area for snooker and junior snooker. And he seemed to have what it took to reach the top and he did reach the top you know he was a top four player won the UK Championship won the Masters a lot of people would be happy with that but I guess because he came so close to particularly the World Championship a little bit like Jimmy White you know Jimmy White's career is defined by not being world champion it's not all the tournaments he won it's the tournament he didn't win and Matthew also lost two close finals and he'd been in front in both of them well he was well in front against Mark Williams of course and when you lose a lot of matches from well in front for whatever reason whether it be the excellence of your opponents or your own failings, you build up scar tissue, and he built up a lot. And I think that shone through when he lost to Sean Murphy, that extraordinary match at the Crucible, when he was, was he five up with six to play and ended up getting beaten? Mm. You know, those kind of things are very hard to shake off, one of them, let alone the succession of them. And I think that's what uh, he found towards the, the end of his career, right at the top. Maybe, you know, thinking about defeat rather than victories. Yeah, and also, of course, you know, snooker, it's not just about on the table, it's off the table as well. His father died when he was young. Paul Hunter, his best friend, died as well. And uh, he wouldn't be human if those two events hadn't taken a toll, particularly when you take them together. Well, 
he was a genuinely close with Paul Hunter, contemporaries of course. They were really good mates, and obviously that was a, a massive blow. And his father, Morel, we got on very well with Morel. He was a, a really good guy. And for those two to pass very close to each other, yeah, as you say, a terrible blow for Matthew. And the other strange thing about Matthew Stevens is he will do anything he can to avoid using the rest, which is very unusual, isn't it? Because the, the players at the moment, current crop of players, are the, probably the best he's ever been with the rest. Well, he avoids it like the plague. I think the three players most prominently at the top of the game who hate the rest uh, and are awful with it, one of them is now uh, John Spencer, who's, who's passed away, the other would have to be Tony Drago and Matthew Stevens. He'll put the extension on the extension on the extension. Anything to avoid uh, using the rest. In fact, he, before Ronnie O'Sullivan uh, made ambidextrous snooker commonplace, he played quite a few shots right-handed. He wasn't as proficient as O'Sullivan, but he did it purely and simply to avoid using the rest, as you say. Mm, quite hard. Well, let's hope he gets back up the rankings. He's sort of in the doldrums at the moment, isn't he, down in the 40s? But, uh, you know, he's at that age where players are winning tournaments, so there's no reason why, why he shouldn't. Sorry, I should say he played a few shots left-handed, because, of course, he's, okay. he is right-handed, yeah. So we'll edit that out of the ring. Yeah. Uh, OK, so that's number seven, so pick another one. OK, uh, number one. Number one. Well, a name that often gets brought up when people talk about the 80s because he, he sort of disappeared from view. Tony Mio. Tony Mio is unique, I think, as a player, in the sense that winning ended his career. <laughs> the way he won the British Open, I think, convinced Mio that playing slowly, playing methodically, playing, frankly, boring snooker, was the way forward when it wasn't. He was such a naturally attacking player at his best... And then all of a sudden, he became really, really ponderous around the table. And that coincided with him winning the 1989 British Open, beating <laughs> Dean Reynolds in what was a truly horrific final. <laughs> One of the worst ever. Yeah. And I think it convinced Mio that, yeah, OK, I might not be the most attractive player anymore, certainly not attractive as I used to be, because he was tremendous to watch in the early 80s and mid-80s. I think it convinced him that, yeah, you know, I can have sustained success playing this way and in fact after the British Open he, he sunk without trace he's one of those players because of the year he was in although he didn't necessarily win many tournaments he was a massive star just because of the time yeah absolutely yeah I mean he had some very good victories to beat Jimmy White at the World Championship he was well known as being uh, Steve Davis's doubles mm -hmm. partner and they were invincible at one point in that tournament uh, came very close to beating Steve Davis when someone shouted out of course I think it was the Larder Classic was mm -hmm. it uh, I think he was on the yellow and someone shouted out. Someone who was supporting him, actually. Um, completely uh, awful timing. But he was really good to watch and a very good player. I think we were just talking about Matthew Stevens being an underachiever. I think Mio was as well. Mm. I think he completely sort of backed away from snooker. I know Jimmy still sees him and he, he sort of works in sort of watch jewellery business, doesn't he? But he's unusual, actually, that one of the few players that era who just has now has nothing to do with the game. Yeah, one story I remember about Tony... He was a very emotional sort, and we were in Deauville for the European Open, and he arrived, all full of the joys of spring, uh, looking forward to playing in the event, to be told that he'd been scratched because he was supposed to play earlier that day. Uh, his management team at the time, Matchroom, I think made a, a mistake with uh, his schedule, and basically uh, he had to withdraw from the tournament. Well, he was scratched from the tournament, and... I remember vividly that he was really upset to the point of being in tears. Now, this was a, a relatively minor ranking event, but I think it showed at the time just 
how much he loved snooker and how much he loved competing. Yes, quite a few people in tears when they, they heard him on the Romford rap, but that's that's another story. Uh, we we went through that with Neil Fold when he was on. Uh, right, so another number? Uh, number ten. Well, this is basically a, another very similar player who maybe won a bit more, but from the same era, Tony Knowles. Well, Tony Knowles rose to world number two. He won a world ranking event. Fine player, semi-finalist in the world championship. But really, everyone remembers Tony Knowles for two reasons. One, there's a suite named after him in the yeah. uh, in, in the which, Phoenix Knights. Which is the main one, of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. the main one, Tony Knowles suite. <laughs> but in all seriousness, his career was defined by a first-round match at the World Championship when he beat Steve Davis 10-1. Now, we've seen a lot of shocks over the years. Ranking shock results is a very subjective business. We all have our own opinions. I think Ty Pushit beating... Stephen Hendry in the Thailand Open was one of the, the top ones for me. But I don't think anyone could argue that Knowles beating Mio 10-1 at the respective stages of their careers that year, in 82 at the World Championship, for me, that's got to be the biggest shock. Not because of the actual outcome. If Knowles had won 10-9, it would have been a big shock. But to win 10-1, at the time, Steve Davis was not just dominant, he was all-conquering. Everyone assumed he was going to at least have a very good defence of the title. And he lost 10-1 in the first round. Yeah, and of course became a star, largely off the back of that. And I guess in a way, you know, we talk about uh, Matthew Stevens and Jimmy White being known for not being world champion. In a way that overshadows the tournaments he did win. Because like you say, it's the first thing you think about with him. Is, yeah. that, is a first round yeah. match, not ranking events he's won. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he was a very stylish player as well, Knowles. And one thing that people don't give him credit for is the fact that um, he was loved by the female uh, supporters so, yeah. of the sport and I think he, he helped the game tremendously in that regard, obviously there was all kinds of sort of tabloid stuff about him as well he was a genuine star and another thing about him as well he just loves the game mm. he really does, ok, he loves the he loved the trappings of the game as well what occurred you know, outside of snooker and the fame it bought him and the, the, the fortune and all that kind of stuff but deep down, he just loved the game and when he was involved in, in competition, I don't think he was ever happier. Yeah, and it, what he also loves is talking about things like conditions and tables. So if, that, if that's your thing, then seek him out. And if it's not, don't. Uh, right, another number. Number four. Well, a, a player in snooker and billiards, and also known for a lot of other things, a businessman, a WPBSA commentator, Mark Wildman. Well, I always remember Mark Wildman playing in the Masters at Wembley. Now, I don't know what the circumstances were, because he wasn't a top 16 player ever. Obviously, someone was in the top 16 who couldn't play, and he, he went in to replace him. And the look on Mark's face when he played in that tournament was just one of pure joy. He wasn't the finest player, but he was one of the finest gentlemen I've mm. ever met in the game. A perfect man to be chairman of the sport, but I suppose rather like Barack Obama, the President of the United States in the last eight years, whatever he wanted to do, he was unable to do because he was shackled by opposition within the board of the WPBSA against him. He was just a genuinely nice guy, Mark. I haven't seen him for a long time. I would love to see him again. I enjoyed his commentary. I never really worked that much with him, but I just thought, you know, if everyone in snooker was like him, the game would be a lot better off. 
I remember he finally got sick of WPSA chairman and he, he, he resigned. And I remember this is a measure of the way he was treated by them because in the official press release they said that he sent a cursory fax from his holiday home as, as if that sort of, you know, he just sort of on a whim decided to resign, as if he'd have written like 27 pages of a resignation letter. It would have made it any, any better. He, he'd had an exper- he had experience in business. He loved snooker and billiards. Remember, it's the WPBSA. Um, and a great character. One of his party pieces, you remember this, is he used to be able to, he'd come to you on a Sunday morning and he'd have the newspaper and he'd say, right, pick a football match and he would be able to tell you within a few hundred how many people had been at the match. That's right, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, why? I don't know. Why you would sort of develop that skill, I don't know. And, uh, but he was also a bit of an eccentric, wasn't he? I remember we went to, remember the tournament in Shenzhen, the China Open, and, uh, you had to sort of go through the Hong Kong border a couple of times. You had to keep showing your passport. He must have lost his passport about seven times. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was always a good company, Mark. I really liked him. And the one thing about him, uh, you know, for years, uh, snooker politics was rancorous. Yes, and that's partic- one way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. and particularly <laughs> when it came to relationships between snooker politicians and the media, and particularly if you were for Clive Everton, because he was considered, uh, you know, the Antichrist, when in fact he was the opposite. Um, and and yet with Mark, I always felt comfortable in his presence, and I could talk to him about anything, and he could tell me anything, and we, we felt, you know, I, I, there was definitely a, a sort of mutual friendship there. And when he, he left the game, I think the game was worse off for us. I think now in the, these times of boom, because there's no doubt in the Barrier and uh, era, you know, it's been fantastic. If he was on the board, I think it would be great because he's just the kind of person, I think, who could, uh, you know, still enhance snooker. Mm. He's mentioned the Masters he got in. He got in Pop Black as well. He told the story because, of course, that was one frame. And he'd drawn Steve Davis and he was determined. He said, he said I'm, what I'm going to do, yeah, three weeks before the recording, I'm not going to go there, play a bad break-off shot, leave Steve a red on and not get a shot. Because, you know, Pop Black was a big deal in those days. So he spent three weeks practising the break-off, perfected it to an absolute art form, got the cube on the green... You know, no way I can't get another shot in the frame. But, of course, what happens, they get, they get down there, and Steve not only wins the toss, but for some reason decides to break himself. So Davis breaks off, snookers him behind one of the ball colours, Mark plays one escape, that's the end of it. Only shot of the match. But, uh, but no, he's very self-deprecating, which uh, in WPSA chairman is quite unusual, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, but he was a genuinely nice guy. And you mentioned before his love of billiards. When he and Clive Overton were at the helm of the mm. game... I'm not saying it was in a position where it was prosperous, because the sport is so minor and so niche that I don't think ever we're going to have a situation where players play for big money. But in relative terms, it was prosperous. I think they got to quite a few tournaments together in India and different places. And when you look at the way the game is now to what it was then, they were golden times for billiards. Yeah, well, he lives in Spain. He's retired to Spain, so uh, we pass our best on to Mark. Okay, uh, another number. Number five. Number five. Drew Henry. Now, Drew Henry was um, one of these players from Scotland who came through in the wake of Stephen Hendry and was very successful. Didn't win big tournaments, but, you know, semi-finals, quarter-finals, played at the Crucible, and is an example of the wave that came through from Scotland. But now, sadly, it's slightly lacking, isn't it? I mean, we've got Anthony McGill, a few others, but nowhere near the number. The first time I saw Drew Henry play, I was very much a, a junior reporter on snooker scene, and Clive had sent me to the Pontins... Uh, autumn festival it was and Drew Henry was one of the stars of the Scotland team that went on to win that year's home internationals now back then Scotland winning the home internationals was a really big deal because it was always England or Wales always but the Scottish team were very powerful Ewan Henderson played Marcus Campbell Alan McManus 
But I think most people at the time thought that Drew Henry was going to be the one who had the, the greatest success. Uh, he was very pronounced left-eyed sighter, mm. rather like um, rather like Graham Miles. And although he did have a, a pretty good career, I don't think he ever quite achieved what many people thought he would. Mm. Uh, the two Drew Henry stories for me that stick out, well, I'll just go back to an early instance in his career where I think he was knocked back. He was playing John Paris in the World Championship first round and he was on the verge of winning and he had a massive kick. It was so untimely and an awful incident. Parrot won the frame, went on to win the match. And I think that planted a seed of doubt in Drew's mind that he never really got rid of. But the two stories that stick in my mind about Drew, one was related to the Crucible again. I guarantee I know what they both are, but go on. That's, that's why he's on the list. One will yeah. involve Willie Thorne and yes. one will involve the Crucible. Yeah. Well, the Crucible... <laughs> I mean, I saw him in the corridor outside. How, how are you, Drew? At least on the, on, on the Friday before it started. How are you, Drew? Oh, all right, yeah, not too bad. He said, you never believe what happened on the way down. I said, what? He said, we were in the car, he said, and somebody shot a, 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 yeah. somebody shot a gun, yeah. a, like a pellet gun thing, at the car. He said it was so scary. Now, throughout my journalistic career, and I'm talking against myself here, I always used to say, is it all right if I use this? Mm. Most journalists wouldn't, but... That's the way I was. And he said, yeah, no problem. So basically, we, myself and Trevor Baxter, who wrote for the Daily Record, did the story. An extraordinary thing to have be shot at on the way to the Crucible. Well, but yeah, but that's it. By the time it ended up with the tabloids, it was literally like Scott's, Scott's snooker racing gun horror. Right? Yeah, exactly, that's yeah. literally what the story <laughs> yeah, yeah. was. You'd think he yeah. was like, you know, in America or something. Yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> I, know, I know, yeah. So that's the one thing. And the other one was at the UK Championship when Willie Thorne very, very stupidly <laughs> was 7-1 up after the first session. And uh, he was with a group of friends in the collection area at Preston Guildhall as they went back out. Multi-table situation, eight tables. In front of all the other players. Yeah, in front of all the other players. Um, he shouted to one of his friends, yeah, get the table, this is seven o'clock at night, yeah, get the table book for half past eight, he won't get past that. <laughs> Drew Henry heard this, got absolutely buzzed up, and went out and won the match. Nine-eight, yeah. Nine-eight. But the sort of ancillary story to this is that a friend of ours... Uh, Bob Harris, who'd had a, a bet on the match, um, couldn't quite believe that Willie was going to lose. And when Henry potted an absolutely incredible red towards the end of the match, and it became obvious he'd now got a frame-winning and match-winning chance, Bob Harris very, very amusingly, well, he didn't mean to be amusing, but very amusingly shouted, fetch the police! That's right, yeah. <laughs> and that's been shouted at Snooker. <laughs> yeah. OK, that's Drew Henry, another number? Uh, number three. Number three, well, again, I mean, this might sound sort of, um, this might be a name a lot of people don't know, might sound a bit obscure, but there'll be a good story coming here. Graham Cripsy. <laughs> well, Graham Cripsy was very much in the, the Mark Wildman mould of a, a really, really good guy. He was um, from a family that had a, a wall of death yeah. motorcycle <laughs> business, and he actually did the wall yeah. of death. I mean, this is not an, a, a tabloid exaggeration. He was a wall of death rider. It was also a, a really good snooker player, <clears throat> but it led to one of the most embarrassing things I've ever had in my life. A year before, I'd seen this guy called um, Wally Potasnik, an Australian guy okay. playing the World Championship, and <laughs> no good. So No offence, Wally, if you're listening. No, no, but he didn't <laughs> play very well in that, in that match. Vladimir Potasnik was his oh, real name. Yeah. So, um, Graham Cripsy turns up at the qualifiers at Preston Guildhall, so... I'm writing for the Grooms Evening Telegraph, which is very close to his home in Skegness. So Graham was one of the, the guys I used to write about on a regular basis. So I said, all right, Graham, I said, have you got? He went, 
that Patasnik bloke from Australia so I said oh bloody hell that's pretty much like a boy who plays mm-hmm. like last year oh thanks for that oh, yeah. so he, didn't, he didn't know who he was so the next day 9-4 now Patasnik <laughs> I'm thinking what do I say to him when he comes in <laughs> what do I say to him when he comes into the press room and I think he lost you'll have to look at back in the records but he certainly, he certainly lost the match maybe 10-4 10-5 something like that and I'm dreading this as he walks up the stand like what do I say what do I say and he walks he walks into the press room and said thanks <laughs> <laughs> and then burst into a big smile and I, I know I was okay but yeah so that learnt me a lesson very early on never ever get involved no. in predictions but also I, I just like the juxtaposition of the two sides of his life snooker player and wall of death rider they don't seem like likely bedfellows, do they? No, absolutely I not. I think no. he went back to it after the when he packed in snooker. I think he went back to it. Yeah, he did. I think he incurred some injuries. I think he. he, he <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> I mean, pre snooker, I, th- I think he, he, right. he injured his hand somehow. And maybe he lost a digit or something. No. But, but um, you that's know. on the wall of death, not the snooker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he, I mean, he was a, a reasonable player, and as I say, a, a really good guy. Yeah. Okay. Another one. Uh, number six. Number six is we've had Matthew Stevens. Is it Kirk Stevens? Well, Kirk Stevens. At his best was just before my time. Um, he's obviously known for his white suits and the straw hat he wore at the the Crucible and all the pizzazz and the razzmatazz around him. And I think he was one of the great characters in the game and one of the people who really helped the sport develop and become, you know, popular to a very very wide audience. In many respects, I think his place in the game is rather similar, although he was very dissimilar in stature and all that to Bill Werbenick, his fellow countryman. They never really won tournaments. But even today, you say to a snooker fan, Kirk Stevens, immediately they know who it is. Um, but I think with him, his defining moment was being involved in that extraordinary match at the Masters when he made the one four seven. You know, it's hard to grade one four sevens in terms of how good they are. But I think his, in terms of the, the circumstance the surroundings, and the way it was achieved would be in my top three 147s of all time. Yeah, 1994 Masters against Jimmy White, and uh, it was only the third 147. And if you look on YouTube, I only saw this recently, they actually stopped the match, you know, after, the, that, after you made the maximum, the sponsor from B&H came out and made a speech. I mean, that would not happen now, no. you just go on the next no. round. But it just shows you how, how big it was, and, and he was defined by it. And it, it brought home to me, because he, he might have come back in the late 90s, he won one of those North America tour events and got, on, got another tour card for a year. And when he came back, the publicity in the, in the press was, was unbelievable. I mean, it just showed you what a big name he was. He was a massive name, absolutely. Uh, 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 one of those, I, I, think, I don't think there's ever been a player who's actually been more famous having won less. I don't think he actually ever won a major professional event. The other thing about the White Stevens semi-final in 84, and White went on to win the Masters, his only title at Wembley, was the fact that that 147 wasn't in isolation. It was a tremendous match all the way through. And if I'm not mistaken, I think White ended up winning 6-4, making a century to win. Mm. Of course, the other thing with Kirk Stevens is sort of cautionary tale of how snooker players can sometimes be led astray. And he, I mean, he nearly died of cocaine addiction, and it was something that effectively ended his career, he went back to Canada, he had all sorts of jobs, he was a car salesman, he was a lumberjack, he, I think he does still play, he still plays on the amateur scene there, because the Canadian scene seems to have uh, collapsed a little bit in terms of certainly new players coming through, uh, but you like to think he's still sort of having a game. Well I know he still does play, because I was uh, commentating on the Moscone Cup recently um, with Jim Weich, who's now the proprietor of a very successful club in Toronto called uh, the Corner Bank, and uh, Jim puts on some tournaments there. 
and occasionally Kirk turns up and has a game, so I know he still plays. Okay, we're going to do two more, so we've got numbers two, eight, and nine. Okay, uh, we'll go for two. Barry Pinches. Barry Pinches. Well, you know, if this is going to be a recurring theme about nice guys, mm. but he really is yeah, yeah. one of the nicest individuals you'll ever come across, and a real snooker diehard. He absolutely loves everything about it. He'll practice all day long. He loves tournaments. He loves the general buzz of an event. You know, okay, he might not be the most attractive player to watch, but, you know, I think if everyone had his attitude towards the sport, snooker would be, you know, in a much better place. In my eyes, he came into, well, certainly into my consciousness when he lost in the final of the uh, 1988 World Amateur Championship to um, James Wattener. He did quite a few good things in the game, one of which, actually, was he earned a ranking point in his first ever event. Now, back in those days, to earn a ranking point, mm. you've got to get to the last 32, and he did so in the Hong Kong Open. Mm. Um, and that was a, a big achievement for a rookie to win a ranking point in his first event. The thing I always remember about him was beating Jimmy White at the Crucible, and that in itself is noteworthy, but it was when he did it, White had just won, he'd made that comeback and, and won the Players' Championship up in Glasgow, and everyone was saying, you know, White's got a great <laughs> chance of winning the World Championship, I was one of them, I thought, you know, he could possibly do this, but Barry Pinchers beat him in the first round, and it was a real dampener for a lot of White fans, but a great moment for Barry. He was accused by one newspaper of lording it around the snooker clubs of Norwich. You couldn't imagine anyone less likely to lord it anywhere, could you? <laughs> I think it was at the Racing Post, I think, at one point. Yeah, just ridiculous. He'd go anywhere uh, to have a competitive practice session. Absolutely prodigious in the amount of work he put into the game. And although he didn't achieve great heights, I think people in snooker will forever have a, a warm place in their heart for Barry. Yeah, yeah, because he had the Norwich City waistcoat. And also, let's not forget, against Alan McManus, he played the longest ever frame, 100 minutes. Uh, that frame in, was it the Ruhr Open? And uh, they had the black over the pocket, the reds around it, and for about, literally about an hour, they just played the same shot up and down. <laughs> I think, now this is not a record that's verifiable, but it's certainly true that he was involved in a frame against Eddie Charlton, um, where... A ball wasn't potted for 19 minutes. Right. So it was nil-nil for 19 minutes. Now, that, that's got to be some kind of record. Yeah, and if anyone's got a tape of that, don't send it in. Um, so it's eight or nine to finish. OK, we'll go for nine. Well, we finish with... Uh, cause it's apt, really, because we're coming up to the 40th anniversary of the first Crucible World Championship, and the man who won it was John Spencer. Well, John Spencer won three world titles, 1969, uh, 1970 and 1977. He was playing his best snooker in 69 and 70, but the one he'll be remembered for was 77, because it was the first ever Crucible. He beat Cliff Thorburn in the final. Spencer wasn't regarded as one of the favourites going into that. Obviously, he was one of the top eight players, but he wasn't one of the favourites. But to win three world titles in that era, you know, I think just proves how good he was, because he got two phenomenal forces to contend with. Ray Reardon, six times world champion, and Alex Higgins. Now, Higgins only won the world title twice, should have won a lot more. But those three players were the great triumvirate of the 70s. And to win the title three times, I think, just underlines how good he was. He was a bit of a joker, wasn't he? I remember Joe Johnson told me that, because Spencer famously made a 147 in a tournament. Uh, that would have been the first on TV, but all the, all the cameramen were on a lunch break. 
Now, as it turns out, the pockets weren't templated and all that, and so it wouldn't have counted officially. But anyway, it would have been a big deal to make it on TV. But Joe, Joe told me that after he potted the pink, so before he potted the last black, he did like a mock faint. Now, you would not imagine anyone doing that today. They'd be no, so nervous. Absolutely. Probably because there'd be big money on it. But that also, that would have been the first on TV. So that tells you something about him. He got a great sense of humour. I mean, when he was chairman of the association, he was having uh, problems, obviously, with um, depression and he'd go up and down like a, a fiddler's elbow, but when he was up, when he was, up yeah. he was great company, he really was. The other thing about him as well, he was, unlike a lot of snooker players, a complete realist in placing himself mm. in the pantheon. Quite often at the Crucible in the 90s, particularly, when the likes of Hendry and O'Sullivan and Higgins were playing brilliant snooker, he'd come into the press room and myself and Clive were there watching the action, and he'd say... Genuinely, if I was playing now, I'd, I'd want, you know, at my best, I'd want 14, 21 star from these guys. Now, whether he would or not is another matter. I, I, I mean, you know, I think it's difficult to compare eras. But he was one of those players who just understood how good the modern players were, even though he was from a different era. He fully appreciated that they played to a standard nowadays that they didn't play to in his day. In his day. Mm. His real rival was Ray Reardon, and uh, it's interesting, they never played in the World Final, just as Davis and Hendry never played in the World Final, which is kind of odd, you think, but um, they, they weren't necessarily best of friends, but I guess you need that, um, that, that contrast, and I remember he told the story about when they both got to the English Amateur Final, so Reardon would have won the Southern Final, and John Spencer won the Northern Final, and the guy, tournament director, rang up, he's put the little programme together, can you send a picture of yourself in? So Ray Reardon has sent a picture of himself, in his dress suit, you know, the ultimate pro, looking great there, he was his cue. And Spencer didn't appreciate this was for publicity, so he just found the first picture he could find of, which was him in his swimming trunks. So there's the programme. You've got Ray Reardon in his dress suit and Spencer in his swimming trunks. <laughs> well, I think that sort of <coughs> unintentionally sums up the way they mm. were, you know. Reardon was the establishment, conservative with a small c. John was ultimately the establishment because he was chairman yeah. of the association, but... He was really a rebel, and, you know, he just loved life. He loved travelling around. In his book, he talks about when he went to Bermuda and all these different places. We went to Thailand to the World uh, Cup. I remember he had a, a, a very enjoyable time there, and all around the world, basically, playing snooker. And like Reardon, actually, this is one thing they did have in common. They were both tremendous in exhibitions. Tremendous. Mm. You know, not just in terms of the standard of the snooker they produced, but in terms of the, the overall show and the entertainment level they provided. Uh, they came from a different era to today's players, no doubt. And I don't think he was a particularly good chairman. I don't think any professional snooker player is a, a good head of a, a, a game's governing body. I just don't think they, they cut out for it. Mm. But in terms of uh, being a, a good guy and a truly great snooker player, you have to say John Spencer was both. Yeah, one thing he did, did do, of course, is he opened the game up and, and sort of we saw a lot of the, the players that we're still watching now that sort of came through that era. OK, Phil, that is it for Snooker Player Bingo this week. Uh, we'll see you next time. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. OK, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.